Good morning, Pam. Oh, welcome back, Andy. Drew. I'm Drew now. Oh, Drew. Sorry. Apology not accepted. Because it wasn't even necessary in the first place. <laughs> Several weeks ago, Andy Bernard had an incident. But after five weeks in anger management, I'm back. And I've got a new attitude and a new name and a bunch of new techniques for dealing with the grumpies. Morning, Jim. Hey, Andy. How are you, man? Good. Drew. What's that? You can call me Drew. No, I'm not going to call you that. Cool. I can't control what you do. I can only control what I do. Andy. Drew. Dwight. How's it going, man? Yes. I have decided to shun Andy Bernard for the next three years, which I'm looking forward to. It's an Amish technique. It's like slapping someone with silence. I was shunned from the age of four until my sixth birthday for not saving the excess oil from a can of tuna. Jim, could you please inform Andy Bernard that he is being shunned? Andy, Dwight says welcome back, and he could use a hug. Okay, tell him that that's not true. Dwight says that he actually doesn't know one single fact about bear attacks. Okay, no, Jim, yes. tell him bears can climb faster than they can run. Jim, tell him! Andy, that's too far. I'm temporarily lifting the shun. Thank you. It means nothing. I need you to do something for me. Anything. Okay, calm down. I need you to acquire an inflatable house and or castle. You mean a moon bounce? What do you think? You've got an hour. Okay. I'm gonna need petty cash. Shunning resumed. Do you, do you want a drawbridge? Unshun. Yeah, that sounds good. Reshun. This is history today. This may be the first time that somebody has used an office clip on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I hope there are no copyright infringements. Um, my name is Pastor Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Garden. And this week, the name of the message is Unshun. And it's taken from Matthew chapter 18. Unshun. And the reason I'm teaching on this this way is because I feel like this is the passage that many people have titled the one on church discipline. And what happens is they take sections of Matthew 18 and they teach them certain ways. And there's another part of Matthew 18 that people say this is about prayer. And then another section that talks about the power of the church. And then there's a couple of parables, one at the beginning and one at the end. And when you separate all these things out and teach them separately, you get a horrible application of scripture, and we're going to talk about that today because I believe a lot of churches, as a matter of fact, I have worked for some that have taken the Matthew 18 passage about church discipline and have butchered it and have really damaged people with it. So we're going to go through that today. Let me read the passage to you. <clears throat> if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often do I got to do this, Jesus? Seven, you know, seven times? That's the number of perfection. After number eight, can I just shun them? And Jesus says to you, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. In other words, what Jesus is saying is forever. So basically what I want to make sure you understand is that we seem to look at Matthew 18 in the vacuum of being Gentile believers. Most of us here are not Jewish Christians. And so we look at Matthew 18 as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people. And that gives us the wrong interpretation because remember, the whole context of the book of Matthew, as I've been explaining, is that Matthew is trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus was Messiah. That is the context of Matthew. And anything you look at in the book of Matthew has to be looked at with the Jewish mind because the book of Matthew, while beneficial to us, was not written to us. It was not written for us. I mean, it was written for us in a sense that it's part of the Bible and we follow Christ and there are teachings that apply to us. But the context of Matthew is this. Hey, Jewish people, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. So you have to keep that in mind as you look at anything in the book of Matthew. And if you don't, you develop problems. And if you look at the book of Matthew, particularly Matthew 18, as a Gentile, you will most likely break this chapter up into several different lessons. And I've seen people do it a lot. For example, one of the lessons at the very beginning of the chapter, the disciples asked, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's part of the teaching of church discipline. The next part is, he talks about the seriousness of sin right after. It. He says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Do you understand that that also is part of the teaching on church discipline? It's not separate from the who is greatest in heaven and the other parts. And then there's a parable of the lost sheep where Jesus says the shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the one that is lost. That also is part of the teaching on church discipline, but far too many people, because we look at it as Gentiles, want to separate that out somehow and make it a different sermon. And then you have the section on church discipline. And unfortunately, when you separate Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17 out from Matthew chapter 1, or Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, and then the verses after, verse 22, you can use church discipline as a very dangerous weapon. In fact, many religious people use Matthew 18 as an excuse to shun people. See, shunning was what the religious leaders at the time, the Jewish religious leaders at the time, specialized in for all types of reasons. I mean, it's an easy mistake to make if you separate Matthew 18, 15 through 17 out from the rest of the chapter. But these guys would shun people for being not fully Jewish. They would shun people for not wearing the right clothes into the temple. They would shun people for the way they acted on the Sabbath. They would shun, 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 shun. They were like shunning animals. They were shunning experts. They were really good 
at shunning. And unfortunately, guys, many people in today's church are very good at shunning. Another error is there's a part in there where if two, are, you know, where if two of you agree on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. A lot of people use this and they come up with this phrase, will you agree in prayer with me? Horrible application of scripture. That is not about agreeing in prayer. That is a bad theologi theological term. Agree with me in prayer. It has nothing to do with prayer requests. That somehow, if two people agree, then God's going to hear it and he will answer. Oh, really? How many of you are Bucks fans? Will you agree with me in prayer that the Bucks will win the Super Bowl next year? God's going to do it. We agree. Terrible theology. Terrible. Also impossible. <laughs> After that, we see another parable at the end of this about the unforgiving servant, where Jesus teaches us there's a servant who has forgiven his debt by his master, but then he goes and he beats and he imprisons those who owe him money. That also is directly tied to church discipline. In reality, the whole thing, the whole chapter is about one lesson and one lesson only. It's about forgiveness and who has the authority to offer it. And remember, as again, I remind you, the context of Matthew is to show the transition from the prophets and the temple and the priests to Jesus and the kingdom of God and his church. So the first application of this passage is there is a new spiritual sheriff in town, if you will. Under the age of the law and the kings and the prophets, all the conflicts among followers of God were handled by the king or the prophet or religious leaders, and you would go to them and they would determine who was guilty and who was not and who would be shunned and who wouldn't be. But when Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, those guys were no longer in power to be conduits for handling conflict. No greater picture of this exists then in a passage from John, I'm going to read this to you. John 8, 1 through 11. I love how this shows how Pharisees are stripped of spiritual authority. And by Pharisees, I don't just mean Jewish religious leaders. I'm talking about arrogant, self-righteous, judgmental Christians today. Watch this. <clears throat> Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning and came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. It's interesting, they didn't bring the man, but they brought the woman. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. I often think he just wrote a list of all those other guys who maybe committed adultery with her or maybe had their own issues. I hope that's what he did. That would be awesome. If I were Jesus, that's what I would have done. You know? Man, I'd love to do that. Man. 
He started writing in the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they started walking away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone. I love that part of the passage. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. I can't. She must have been tears streaming, relief. Just like she was facing death from these arrogant, pious, religious people. And Jesus says, Your accusers are gone. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. Jesus did forgive her, but he also commanded her to go and sin no more, and that's important. But what I want you to see here is the authority of the Pharisees was based upon being experts in self-righteousness. The authority of the church is based on being experts in receiving grace and forgiveness. So let's transition to the confrontation part of this passage. There are some prerequisites before you deal with somebody's sin that we read about in the first part. The first one is verses 1 through 6, and Jesus, they, they're asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus explained to them, it's not measured by your spirituality, it's not measured by your accomplishments in the temple, it's not measured by how much money you give, it's measured by your humility. Are you listening to me, church? It's measured by your humility. And Jesus explains, the way you thought greatness in the kingdom was beforehand, there's a new sheriff in town, and now it is measured by humility. That's what he teaches in verses 1 through 6. And then another prerequisite is he explains the seriousness of sin that should give you that humility. He says, let me explain to you. Let me explain why you should be so humble. If your right hand does something wrong, you're better off to chop it off. Because if your authority is based upon your righteousness, you better not have any hand because it's better to be without a hand than to not enter the kingdom of God. And he explains, for you to have authority in the God's kingdom, you either have to be humble or perfect. And he explains the seriousness of sin so that his listeners will hear and understand, whoa, it's not about how good I am. It's about how broken I am. Another prerequisite in verses 7 through 9, or uh, verses 10 through 14, Jesus does whatever is necessary to achieve us when we fall. That's the 99 sheep, and he leaves them and goes to find the one. So he explains, this is the concept you have. Here's the greatest, those who are humble, and here's why you should be humble, and let me explain to you how we look at it in the kingdom. If we have 99 sheep that are following and doing great, my concern is not with them. My concern is to do whatever I can, even if it means leaving these sheep and going finding the one who is hurting and straying and broken. So Jesus sets all that up, right? And then he talks about conflict. <clears throat> Remember I told you the authority of the Pharisees was based upon being experts in self-righteousness. That's why people would go to them to deal with conflict because they know how to live. They understand the law and they're good at keeping the law so they can help us. But when we become the church, we have authority because we are experts not in 
being righteous, but we're experts in receiving grace and forgiveness. After this passage about the unforgiving servant and all those things, we come to what is sandwiched in between all of this stuff. The 99, how serious sin is, and humility is what's greatest in the kingdom, and the unforgiving servant. Right smack in the middle is this little section about, and if there is a problem between a couple of you, here's how you handle it. Number one, the process cannot be short-circuited. You know what we often like to do? What's the first step? If somebody's offended you, go to them. You know what we like to do first? Go to someone else. Don't we love that? Hey, you know what they did to me? You know what that shows? Man, I got to tell you, as I'm preaching it, I'm overcome with guilt. It just shows a lack of courage. It shows you're a spiritual wuss. Because you know what's happened? In reality, when you skip step one, you're gossiping. And now you got to have someone else come in to correct you. And now you need to be unshunned for your own sin. And what we do in the church is we're very good at, listen, will you pray for me about this other person? We are really good at that, aren't we? Will you, matter of fact, will you agree with me in prayer about this other person? We really jack it up, you know? The second part of the process is this. If you go to someone and they ask for forgiveness and you forgive them and then a week later they sin again in the same area, you don't go to step two. Where do you go? Step one, 70 times seven. I'm not saying you can't protect yourself from someone else's sinfulness. You certainly can put up boundaries in your life if someone is habitually sinning in a certain area that has a direct effect on you or your family. I'm not saying you, have, you can't be wise about it, but if someone sins against you and you go to them and they ask for forgiveness and then a week later that same sin crops up and you go to them, you don't go right to step two and bring two or three more people. You go right to step one. And if they don't hear you, you go to step two, you bring in a friend. If they hear you then, ask for forgiveness, great. A week later, they sin again, where do you go? Step one. And why is that? Because we're not righteous. We're not experts in righteousness. We're experts in what? Receiving forgiveness. Then there's another part of the past, you know, the, the whole process. Unshun the shunned. And here's what I mean. As a Christian, as a Christian, you are never allowed to say, I'm so done with this person. When he says make them like a Gentile or a tax collector, he's not saying don't ever talk to them. I remember I was part of a church early in my career where there was, some, there was a person involved in sin and the church was instructed don't talk to this person anymore. And I knew it was wrong. It was my, I was just a lowly youth pastor. I talked to the person all the time. I got in trouble for it. But you know, the reason I wanted to talk to them is because I knew how sinful I was. And I knew if those guys knew all the things that I struggle with, they wouldn't let anybody talk to me. You are never allowed to say you're done with this person. 
If you get to step four, if they don't hear you on the first step, and they don't hear you with a couple of friends, and they don't hear you when you bring your pastors and your spiritual leaders in in step four or step three, if it gets to step four and you're supposed to treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile, you know what that means? Then instead of loving them as a brother or sister in Christ, you now love them with the gospel. You love them with the gospel of grace and forgiveness. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their enlightenment. You know, when people don't know Christ, we don't, you don't know Jesus, I'm not talking to you. Is that what we do? If so, I don't want to be a part of this church. You know what we do? We love them. We care for them. We get involved in their life. We show them the love of Christ. We go after them like they're the one sheep that has gone astray. And we get involved and we hope to, that God will use us to save them and to transform them. Compare this to what the Pharisees wanted to do in, in John 8. What did they want to do? Jesus, she sinned. Shouldn't we kill her? Now, it's against the law for us to stone people, but I imagine some churches probably would if they could. We stone them with our shunning. We stone them with our judgment. We stone them with our silence. We stone them with our lack of love and lack of compassion. We stone them with our misapplication of Matthew 18. I'm trying to explain to you guys just how much Jesus says in Matthew 18, you're never supposed to shut anyone out. You might change the way you interact with them. You might change your, the goals that you have in the relationship with them, but you never shut them out. What did Jesus do? He hung out with the Gentiles and the tax collectors. That's why he said, make them like Gentiles and tax collectors. By the way, you see, that's who I hang out with all the time, right? <laughs> you know what, guys? If you can't forgive someone, it's probably because you're not an expert in forgiveness. And you may be unforgiven yourself. Because truly, guys, if you really, really understand your sinfulness and it's brought you to a place of humility and you understand how much your forgiveness cost, you would never even dream of withholding it from another person. Consider those you need to forgive as better than yourself. That's the first thing. If you come into a confrontation with saying, I'm going to get this person right, they're going to be on my plane. You're a Pharisee. And in your heart, you want to stone them. But when you consider others as better than yourself, you're able to have the concept of forgiveness. And then, if you are unable to forgive them, then you may not be an expert in receiving forgiveness, which ironically makes you the shunned and therefore you have no authority to confront sin. The authority of the church comes from being experts in receiving grace and mercy, not experts in being good church people. Because I don't care how good you think you are, none of you are good church people. Trust me. I'm not. Matthew 18, Jesus strips the power away from the self-righteous with teachings on humility the seriousness of sin, the process of being humbled in confrontation, and the warnings of not being a forgiver when he talks about the unforgiving servant. 
So what we're going to do to close today, and Megan's going to come up, instead of having a closing song, we're going to lead you through four specific prayers. I'll take one, then Megan will take another one, and then we'll kind of go through it like that. And that's how we're going to close our service today, because what I want you guys to leave with is this. I want you to leave with enough humility that gives you the authority to be forgivers. Does that make sense? Have humility that gives you authority to be forgivers. So if you will, just, you don't have to bow your head and close your eyes if you don't want. If you do, that's fine. You can just kind of sit here and just listen. But the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us as a congregation that God would make us experts in receiving forgiveness and mercy. Dad, keep us ever mindful of just how sinful we are. Lord, there's so many flaws in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we interact with family and friends, how we act different in church than we do in our living room. And there's so many things, God. I just pray that you would make us experts in receiving your forgiveness and your mercy. Help us to understand just how powerful that forgiveness is. forgiveness because you never once considered yourself better than us so who are we to ever consider ourselves to be better than somebody else God we just uh, we now pray for courage we don't want to be sissies anymore when it comes to dealing with conflict and the barriers that cause us to shun one another I pray that you would give us through the humility of understanding forgiveness the courage to approach those who have offended us and deal with the issues so that we don't have to shun one another anymore. That we can live in harmony and peace and we can agree together. And God, I pray that you would allow us to have the courage to take that first step. Lord, don't allow us to be lacking in courage and make us skip step two to talk to other people first. Help us to talk to each other first. you right now to put the picture of one person who you need to forgive in your mind.
There's somebody, we all have them. Father, I ask that you impress upon each one of us an insatiable desire to forgive that person and to start becoming an expert in forgiveness by extending love and grace and forgiveness to the person that we have pictured in our head. And God, don't let us kid ourselves. Don't let us fool ourselves into thinking that they don't deserve it or that we don't have to be an expert at that because you were. Because here's the thing, you call us to follow after you, to pick up our cross and follow after you. So that means we have got to be experts in forgiveness too. And Lord, I pray that as a church and as a congregation, we can be so different that we truly can be that model of grace and forgiveness for others so that when people come in this door, they see that in us. They see that in the way that we treat one another. They see that in the way that we talk to one another. They notice that we aren't a place that talks about one another, that we are different. And it's because we have this insatiable desire to be experts in extending forgiveness and forgiving uh, grace. Lord, as we enter into this Lenten season, we ask um, that we continue this time of prayer, this time of focused prayer as a uh, congregation, individually, together, corporately. As we think about these next 40 days, forgiveness is one aspect of you picking up that cross and bearing our burdens and our sins for us so that we might be with you. Lord, it is my prayer for this congregation that we spend these next six weeks thinking about what it means to anticipate and to wait for Easter. And we thank you. We don't even know how to thank you, so we'll just say it. And we'll say that we can't wait to be with you one day and thank you in person. Church, stand with me. Father, thank you. Bless us as we go in peace. Help us to come back here next week with open hearts and open minds, ready to love you, ready to serve you, ready to support our kids, ready to support one another. And may you go with the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, who has already gone ahead of you preparing the way. And it is in the name of his son that we pray. Amen. Go in peace.